So, Ben, welcome. I am so lucky to actually be seated in the room, physically, not on Zoom, with a <laughs> proper 3D human being. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm here with Ben Brown, who's a naturopathic physician, trained in Australia, and uh, been living in the UK for quite some years now. Yep. So Ben, I just thought it would be amazing for the audience to find out a little bit about you and your background. Can you just give us a little bit more of an introduction maybe? And, uh, and then I would love to hear how you actually got into the field. Because yeah. we always talk so much about someone's knowledge and, uh, and sort of plumb the depths of your knowledge, but we never go back and actually find out what made you jump into that field. So you do a lot. You're an editor of a journal. You have, um, you've been an editor of other journals as well. You're involved in a number of projects. So can you just set the scene for us and then we can, we can yeah. dive into your past? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so currently, um, yeah, I have quite a few different responsibilities, but um, a, a big thing at the moment is I'm the director of the Nutritional Medicine Institute, which run a peer reviewed journal as well as host um, conferences and events for healthcare providers, basically delivering CPD, CPE uh, type events, um, but then more widely involved in the industry through things like food supplements and through to education, working with colleges and teaching and you know many, many different areas and also trying to publish a little bit of my own work uh, from time to time. So that's sort of, largely what I'm doing at the moment but the the story of how I got there is is more convoluted and we can jump into that if you want. I'd love to because I think it always helps to set the scene because you know most of us have had a calling um, into mm. these kinds of professions that um, you know it doesn't always start off like I want to be an architect or I want to be a doctor it's generally we, we've been driven um, to the healing profession you know, because of something that's happened to us. And I'm just wondering, I've never heard your story and I know yeah, other yeah. people would love to hear it. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's hard to understand sometimes why you end up where you are. And <laughs> I, I do sometimes wonder, I certainly didn't have a vision for it early on. Like I, I sometimes joke one of the only, well, the first book I wrote has the only image in the book is of the Bristol stool scale. It's like, <laughs> It's an image of poo, basically. <laughs> so I was sort of thinking, like, what would my careers advisor at school say, have said if I said, I would really want to write a book with a picture of poo in it? <laughs> but it's like, jokes aside, I think um, for me, the story of how I got into natural medicine is fairly simple to my mind. So basically, um, my health history, without boring you, um, started to suffer about the age of 10 or so. So I started developing chronic health problems, including things like allergies and sensitivities and chronic rhinitis and asthma and all, all sorts of stuff. And um, it sort of went from like vibrant little kid from what I've been told to, to, you know, chronically ill and suffering from a lot of health issues. And then I think essentially that um, culminated or sort of peaked as a, as a downward spiral in my teenage years when I ended up developing chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. So I was like bedridden for months and 
went to lots of doctors and didn't get any answers or when I did get answers, they didn't know what to do with the information. So, you know, for example, one of them ran, uh, you know, a screen for Epstein-Barr virus and that was really high and my glands were swollen, but uh, basically like, oh, we found Epstein-Barr virus, but there's nothing we can really do to help you. <laughs> and oh, wow. um, the last straw was I, I had, um, I think I'd seen a, this was about the fifth doctor and and um, the last one said, oh, you're really depressed. What, what Do you want some antidepressants? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, luckily, that didn't make any sense at the time. And I just said, well, of course, I'm freaking depressed. I'm in bed all day and I can't move, you know. So it's luckily I didn't go down that route. And oh, who knows? Maybe they would have helped too. But I didn't take them. And, and then... Um, you know, I lived in a community that was a little bit alternative. So, you know, friends of the family said, well, why don't you go and see these people? Like, they're a bit different. They're not, you know, conventional medicos, but, you know, maybe you'll get some help and answers. You know, they've helped other people, you know, a similar problem. So we went off to see a couple of people, um, a, a naturopath and a, and, a, and a really fantastic guy who was uh, like naturopath, osteopath, and I think he had a few other qualifications. He sadly passed away about two years ago. And I, I went, the, the first person I saw like help, you know, convince me that diet was important and I should, <laughs> I should probably eat a bit better, that kind of thing. And that was really good. And it got me sort of interested and motivated. But this, this, the, the last guy I saw really basically did a few things. I think he put me on you know, and this doesn't work for everyone with chronic fatigue, but it really helped me. He put me on vitamin C at extremely high doses, not intravenous, but but um, just taken orally. So I won't go into the doses, sort of irrelevant, but it was very, very high. And I think something as simple as a multivitamin radically changed my diet in eliminating a lot of, you know, things that could be causing problems and trying to improve the overall quality of it. And also got me doing what I now know is graded exercise, but in a very um, personalized, gentle sort of way, mm -hmm. not the way it's normally prescribed with cognitive behavioral therapy. And also gave me a sense of optimism, which I had not really had before, mm -hmm. uh, that I may be able to get better. And, and I vividly remember after being bedridden for months, after going through this sort of program that I was given, within a week, I had a really noticeable difference in how I felt every day within a week. That is incredible because yeah. so many people mm. in the same boat. Right. It, you know, it, it takes was... a, a really long time, but I, yeah. I'm really interested in the vitamin C angle because that isn't always routinely used, is it? It's not. It's unfortunately, even to date, the use of vitamin C for chronic fatigue and post-viral fatigue is really not been well explored so it's not it's still sadly a poorly validated therapy a lot of people are using it empirically in practice and um you know and, and both oral and intravenous but it's just not been well validated and it i think it it has huge potential mm -hmm. but i can't show you any studies to show that but um, but you yeah. i mean <clears throat> would you would you think about a possible mechanism? I mean, I can I can think of a number. It, yeah, it sounds, there's loads. Yeah, like, there's... that's the thing. So I I'm really interested. I became quite interested in helping other people with chronic fatigue, and I wrote a review paper that was published some years ago on the on the topic. And 
basically at the time, um, there's, there's almost nothing like of actually studying the administration of vitamin C in, in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, but there's a few things you can draw on to triangulate sort of why it would potentially be helpful for people or in the people it has helped, why it would have helped mm -hmm. them. So there's a, there's a few things that stand out for me. One of them is the anti-stress uh, type effect. And I'm not saying people with chronic fatigue, it's all in their head and they're distressed cases or anything. It's just that one of the most reproducible findings biologically in patients with CFS is, is what we call their, this is a long word for nervous system, but the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, mm. which is a, an integral part of your overall nervous system, has gone awry, basically. And it's a bit, you know, it shouldn't really use the term burnt out, but it's basically burnt out mm -hmm. in patients mm -hmm. with CFS. Um, and there's a very characteristic presentation. So what we do know is that in patients with stress and high levels of stress hormones is that vitamin C can help improve mood, but also improve the biology of the stress response. So that's one the other thing I think that's really, um, well, actually there's two more I'll mention. The other thing is that vitamin C, it's just obvious, it's a really potent antioxidant. And another thing you very commonly see, and this is in the research in patients with CFS and fibromyalgia is they have what we call high levels of oxidative mm -hmm. stress associated with mitochondrial dysfunction, which are the energy producing organelles of the cell which makes sense. It's a low energy disease. The energy systems aren't working. Loads of oxidant stress give people an antioxidant. It can really help improve things. So this has been shown in other areas, but not very well demonstrated in CFS yet, but the, the logic is there. And then the final thing, and there is a little shred of evidence, thanks to Ron Hanahaki's group out at um, the Riordan um, clinic. And what they, um, were able to demonstrate in their patients with Epstein-Barr mm -hmm. uh, antibodies that were very high is that when, so they do a lot of intravenous vitamin C. In fact, I, I don't know if there's a clinic in the world that does more intravenous vitamin C than these guys do. And they've published quite a few um, studies from their clinic. And one of them that's really interesting is they found that in patients who came in with high levels of Epstein-Barr antibodies, all of them who go through IV vitamin C, you see the Epstein-Barr viral levels drop basically. And of course, vitamin C is really good for your immune system. And when you're administering it intravenously, it's like, it just does incredible things. But, um, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's some really strong rationale to it, but it, you know, it's, we're almost at the same point we were 20, plus years ago when I had this issue actually longer is that we don't have a lot to hang our hat on. But one of the cool things with natural medicine and nutritional medicine in general is who cares if the evidence isn't there, if you've got a good logical reason for something, try it because it's extremely low risk and it might help people, which is a really high <laughs> payoff if it does work and, you know, and then free publish that, like write it up as a case study and share it with everyone. And but you know, very topical like, for now with, um, with long yeah. COVID as well as uh, all the immune challenges. I mean, obviously yeah. we know a number of doctors who are campaigning hard for IV vitamin C and even high doses of oral. 
And you were on you were on high doses of oral, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and that's right. It's it's extremely relevant now with the the focus on things like active uh, respiratory infections, but also the complications like sepsis, etc. Especially with with IV vitamin C, not so much oral for that indication, but. Um, I mean, the evidence is there. And the other thing is, like you said, with, with um, post-viral fatigue, which is essentially probably what I had in some shape or mm-hmm. form, yeah, is, is a post-viral fatigue syndrome, which we now call long COVID, but it's the same thing. Like we're just giving it a different name. It's but it, no but the different. Effect, but the, yeah. you know, the effect mm. of the body is the same, isn't it? It is. And it's like all of a sudden we've discovered long COVID, but I can tell you that to my mind, it looks exactly like post-viral chronic fatigue, which has yeah. been around for years, been a huge challenge clinically for people, um, has fallen into the realm of integrative and alternative sort of medicine because we can do something about it. Whereas, and it's so often, you know, as you experience, gets put in the bag of psychosomatic as right, well, in, yeah. down the conventional route and, yeah. um, and giving antidepressants. And I, yeah. that's one thing I'd love to come back and talk to you about because I'm sure you've seen the study that's, um, come out everywhere and being published about the fact that um, with antidepressants and SSRIs, it, you know, there's no chemical imbalance now. They've, oh, they've yeah. found. But let's part that for a sec. We'll come cool. back to that because I'd love you to finish talking about your story. So yeah, yeah. Was your the vitamin C that you were given? Was it in divided doses? It was. So I'll 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 say this, but I, I, this is not um, advice to anyone. No, we, we yes, it's probably disclaimer somewhere, <laughs> but. But basically, I was given it to um, what they say, bowel tolerance. So it's this old strategy that was developed by a doctor in California about 40 years ago called Cathcart. And he came up with this thing and he's published some good papers on it, but no one's really replicated it since. But it's been used widely as a strategy. So the idea is really simple, is you take divided doses every few hours until you hit bowel tolerance, Mm -hmm. which means loose stools or diarrhea. And so I was given this protocol and I was taking five grams every two hours Mm -hmm. um, and I never reached bowel tolerance. So I did that for weeks, (laughs) like literally weeks. But that's exactly what you find when you're under immune challenge as well, is that the body's capacity when when it's in need is is vast for vitamin C. Yeah, well, this we can thank Cathcart for this series because that for this this idea, because that's what he proposed is that. In his patients, that's exactly what he was seeing, is that you don't hit bowel tolerance where you have an extremely high threshold. He was giving hundreds of grams a day orally and not um, witnessing diarrhea in some patients because their demand, or at least his theory goes, was higher. So it's, you know, this. it seems to, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people, including some you know, proper scientists who are looking at this objectively and they go, it may, it seems to be doing that, but, you know, all we've got to go on is these old studies from the 70s. So it's... But it's not going to hurt you. Yeah, it doesn't. So, yeah, yeah. you know... So, There's no real risk. No. <laughs> yeah. So so how long did it take you to recover? I know you were doing this in conjunction with diet as well and you must have made some pretty big changes. Yeah, it was... It was For me, it was a radical shift. So I went from not really paying any attention to my diet. I don't think it was particularly bad, but it was certainly not good. And it really um, radically changed the way I think about my health. I can't recall what my recovery time was, but it was fairly swift in that I noticed a significant improvement Mm -hmm. fairly fast. And I would, you know, I would say within months I was um, a lot better, but I 
you know, I, I don't recall I was a teenager and I didn't care so much as I do these days about objectively looking at illness and recovery, <laughs> but I was just happy to be alive. And, and um, I think what that moment did for me was quite pivotal. It really um, changed the way I think about my health and self-care and, and um, it got me very interested in eating well, learning about nutrition just for my own benefit because there was no way I ever want to be back in bed like that again. It was horrible and very frustrating and also got me interested in supplements like, you know, vitamins and minerals and herbal mm -hmm. products just to, for self-care basically. So that was really, for me, um, a huge thing that changed the way I think about my own health. And then um, n a number of years later, when I was looking at, you know, going to university, I was browsing and browsing courses and like a lot of people I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> it's like, who does at that age anyway? Right. But, but I eventually I hit this random course, which was naturopathic medicine. And it had like a medical foundation. I always loved science. It had things like biology and chemistry. And I just thought that's really cool. I'd love to learn, you know, biochemistry like that and and how it relates to human health and medicine and it also had like nutrition and nutritional mm -hmm. biochemistry I'm like that's amazing <laughs> and herbal medicine like so I get to study the herbs that I'm like really interested in because I'm using them for my own you know well-being and I'm like and counseling and stuff I'm like this is amazing so I like literally after seeing this course, I didn't really do any further investigation. I literally decided to do it, I think within a week or two and it was starting and I just went and moved like in, in Europe, it'd be the equivalent of moving countries, but I moved into state in Australia and, and just started studying and hunkered down. And, and I think, you know, for some reason like that, there are probably other things that drove me, but I really applied myself because I loved the topic, found it very interesting and, and ended up, um, yeah, I was never particularly good academically prior to that, but I did well in this mm -hmm. school because I really liked it and came out and, um, you know, managed to get into some areas that I really wanted to get into post graduation, including education and research and stuff like that. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a, a sort of a roundabout way of my own health experience, getting me interested in self-care, which then led me into a discipline that's related to that. I think, um, I know, and you've never looked back. I think our, our, our stories are pretty similar as, as they are with many um, um, health professionals in the, in the, natural, in yeah. the natural field. It's our own ill health and um, failure of uh, medicine conventionally to be able to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. So my route was autoimmune disease, but I had Epstein-Barr um, as well, and um, not not quite as flattened um, in terms of chronic fatigue, but still very very sick for for, for decades really. Yeah. Um, until you know following my own path, but um, you've been you've been prolific, and I know we're going to put links to your books, and um, you've been so busy recently, but uh, you used to run an amazing podcast as well, mm -hmm. and have great guests on there. But I think the where you really um, bridge the gap for so many of us nutritional professionals is is your um, your ability to translate the science 
And I know you spend a great deal of time looking at papers and then translating that science into sort of clinical pearls that um, that other practitioners can can understand. And so, your um, one of your new ventures. Um, can you talk to us about the institute? And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but firstly, thanks for sharing your story. I completely agree that I, you know, a lot of people get into this area through their own. It's like a lightning bolt experience normally that happens in people's mm. lives that it's either them or someone they it's close to them and it just sort of like does something, I think. And, you know, and for a lot of people too, this isn't a job. It's like a passion. And I think a lot of it comes from those, you know, those experiences we share. So, you know, it's... I, I, I know with <laughs> me it, it was literally, uh, you know, I, I walked across the car park after leaving... Um, the surgeon's office for the post he, he already removed 100% of my thyroid and basically said that's it that's all we can do for you and I was so so sick and um, in such a bad way that literally um, and he'd also um, I had a paralyzed vocal cord so I've never had, I've had one I've only had one working vocal cord since I was 20 and um, it was um, it was that realization of being left totally in free fall on your own and there's no safety net and I think I knew then I was 20 years old I couldn't speak and uh, and I'd kind of been left like that um, so mine was a lightning bolt because it was I, I just I remember it so clearly making that decision that I'm going to fix this and I'm going to find it and do it my own way and so I know it is it's um when you when you when you come back to yourself I mean a, you never want to go back again, do you? Mm -hmm. And so the other thing I'd like to talk to you today um, is um, some of your sort of top takeaways in terms of resilience, because building a resilient body, we're all going to meet stresses and strains. Um, we're going to meet pathogens. And it's our ability to be able to, to bounce back. Yeah. And while we're in these exquisite physical forms, we need to be able to caretake them better than than many do and um and even sometimes i have to bring myself back because similar i know you're very similar because you also work incredibly hard so um first of all there's all these things i want to talk about and um and i know time is limited so can you just take us back and talk to us about um the institute yeah. and uh, give us some information on that because our health professionals that are watching this um we're going to put links to everything so that they can follow your cool. work there yeah, no problems. Yeah, so the Nutritional Medicine Institute is what it's called, and it was founded um, in, a, in a sort of weird convoluted way because it, we sort of got going at around the time of the pandemic, so which has mm. just sort of been a wild card in terms of um, changing the way we do things and the, and, and the way we've organised it. But, but basically it just comes from a, a long set of experiences over a long period of time where I've been involved on organizational but also on the speaker side of in events um and just just had the vision for doing something really wonderful in the uk every year basically and um the idea was just to do something terrific that healthcare providers can go and to and be inspired and connect with colleagues and you know get a get a vibe from more than anything and 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 just really you know, and, and high quality uh, content and speakers. So we're, you know, very big on 
impartiality and and really getting the the best people out there to to deliver so i think we've done a reasonable job of that despite the challenges and and um with you know our first big event in person thankfully is is in october this year it's a fantastic lineup of speakers yeah thanks and it's and it's uh, and going back to poo it's um on the microbiome isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah it is there's elements of it so it's um it's a it's an odd theme, so it's really about personalized nutrition and how that gravitates around biomarkers, but then how those biomarkers are used in a personal way, you know, because people aren't just biology, they're people. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand how to communicate and work with the patient and, and that kind of thing. So it's sort of, you know, it's not really a disease theme, it's a personalized nutrition theme and and how do we you know, move into that. And an element of that is the microbiome because that's such a big area that everyone's looking at now, but it's also got elements of uh, nutrigenomics. So we've, you know, on, on the microbiome, we've got Ted Dinan from University of Cork. He's one of the world's leaders uh, in this area. And on genetics, we've got like the father of nutrigenomics, um, Jose Ordovas. And and so, you know, so it's, we've been really lucky in getting some of the highest profile people you could dream of um, in their respective areas to to deliver the content. So so that's kind of cool. And, um, and Are yeah, you live yeah. streaming the event for people who cannot make it in person? No, we're not, but we are recording it okay. all. Yeah, so it will be available as a recording package. Basically what we found with COVID as our experience is that one or the other works better yeah it's like you either go and do it in person and and have that experience or you don't and you do it online (laughs) but don't try and mesh the two (laughs) because it just gets messy and and um so yeah we're not live streaming but we they will be available as recordings and if you're around it's in london in person so yeah, that's cool. And and um, the other thing we're doing with NMI is we've, we've got this peer review journal. Mm-hmm. So the, the vision is to have that um, indexed on the National Library of Medicine. Our first issue was in March this year. There's a very long um, process of peer review and publication. We've got quite a lot of papers in that process at the moment and um, the vision is for it to be quarterly and the scope of it is very relevant to healthcare providers so it's called the nutritional medicine journal it's on the you know the links will be with this and and um, and again like one of the visions with this overarching vision is it needs to be accessible um, to both the authors but also to the readers Mm. and one of the problems as you know with science is it's often prohibitive uh, to do and prohibitive to um, to read. Like, you know, for an author, it can cost thousands of pounds. People may not know this. It can cost thousands of pounds to get your paper in a journal that yes. people can then access freely. Like yes. I've, I've literally paid thousands to get a paper open access in a, in a high tier yeah. journal. It's, it's nuts. So it feels criminal to me. And the other thing, and I, you know, my papers are not paid my research is not paid by taxpayers' money, but a lot of it is, and you still have to pay for it. And then the other thing is, um, you know, for, for readers too, like the journal subscriptions can be nuts, like, that, you know, over a thousand a year for some journals just to, to get a journal that might help your patients. So one of our um, missions was, you know, free to authors and free to read. So it's open access 
uh, online and it's uh, for authors who want to submit articles. It's which free. Is, which is yeah. truly incredible. And of course, the elephant in the room when it comes to um, science and journals is obviously the last two years has thrown into very sharp relief that not all papers are as unbiased and objective as people would like to think they are. Yeah, yeah. And um, so the, the, there is a new crop, isn't there, of journals coming to the fore, you know, with editors much like you who want to have something that is totally transparent and uh, and not uh, linked to any dubious sources uh, with the proper peer review process. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, I think there's always been a real problem in science with the quality of of information and uh, you know integrity of, of articles etc but you know and that will always be there unfortunately but it, it's the revolving door with a conflict of interest with the corporations yeah, yeah. I, I know um, as we get longer and longer in the tooth I have to look and sometimes think that we're a little bit the old guard now I talk about Robin Robin myself now so Dr Robert McCurk who's our founder has obviously been a scientist for many years and he goes back to the days when science was uh, not funded by the corporates at all, that it was truly blue sky science, you know, looking at hypotheses with no um, idea of what was going to come out at the end of it. Yeah. And uh, and the funding was much more independent. And of course, in his career, he's seen the entire shift to basically corporate science, isn't it? And then... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely corporate science. And there's also more, you know, sinister things as well. Like there are examples of papers that are completely fabricated, you know, just for clicks, you know, it's like clickbait. It's just insane, like what's happening out there. So there's, you know, there's the, you know, it really has become a, an, a huge industry and there's a lot mm. of dodgy activity within that industry. I agree. Like you look back at the, you know, the journals and stuff like 50 years ago and it's like, you know, it makes me feel like, um, I, I don't know, like a, you know, a bit nostalgic or something, mm. because you can tell that like these articles are coming from doctors in their practice with no links to anything no, who just... are observing things and writing up hypothesis and testing it. I love this stuff, it's... but it's gone, you know, and it's been overtaken by this massive industry. And I think at the expense of people doing science, like there should be more people in our field doing that bench work and saying, I had a patient where I observed this, mm -hmm. I should be sharing this with my colleagues through the language of science and publishing a cool case study that we can all see and talk about and have it scrutinized by peer review because I might learn something. You know, it's, 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 so it's true. really cool. <clears throat> Speaking for myself, I mean, you know, and I know there's many people like me who've got this complete distrust now and, mm. um, and almost veering away from papers because, you know, you follow the money trail and you go straight down to look at the conflicts of interest and you just think, well, I don't want to read this paper. Yeah, so yeah. having having more journals like yours and the other ones springing up with sort of people that we know and trust at the top of them, it, uh, it does put the trust back into science again. Mm. But not everybody knows how to structure a good you know, a good case review. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be something interesting as well. If... Yeah, it's something we're doing. So, so our publication guidelines are very simple. Um, so if you are interested in publishing and contributing to our industry, I think it's really, really important, um, you know, get in touch because we can help you with that. And something we're looking at doing soon as well as building in resources and tools for authors as well to help, 
you know, help them understand the process and also if needed, help coach them through the process as well, just as a service. So, you know, there's definitely, it's not as challenging, I think, as a lot of people imagine it to be. It's just, you know, hunkering down and doing it. And mm. the problem is you, you need to, you know, really come at it from, you know, you're not going to necessarily be famous for this or make anything out of it but what you are doing is contributing to the advancement of our profession basically and i think that's, that's a good motivator that is a really worthy motivator I yeah. Think so. yeah so uh, you know that's resilience as well um another aspect of it so just coming back to thinking about our bodies again i you've been You've been in this field a long time. You've contributed so much. Can you crystallise um, down into five or six sort of top tips that you might that that, that everybody could do um, themselves from home on their own? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's it's a it's a huge topic, as you know, and I think this ties in with the DNA of what A and H is all about. Is is this very big picture? sort of ecological perspective of health and you could talk about resilience in millions of different ways for days and days because it's tied to your social environment your physical environment you know the quality of air the water your physical activity the way you think um your nutritional status like all of these things but like you know, if we, if like just some simple tangible things that stand out for me and I'll start with one that you know, I'm, almost sounds like a bit, like of a cheap shot almost, but supplements. And, the and you know, the reason I'm mentioning this is not because I'm involved in the dietary supplement industry, or maybe it is, but I've learned things because of that. But I just want to share a, a little bit of, um, of research briefly. Mm, I, no, yes. I, we said I wouldn't. <laughs> but, but there was a couple of studies that were done by um, Julia Rockledge and uh, um, one of them was performed in New Zealand and what they were doing was they were studying uh, micronutrients so they were giving these patients um, a broad spectrum micronutrient complex you call it a multivitamin mm -hmm. but it, a very high potency multivitamin mm -hmm. like not the kind of multivitamin you normally find in the shops and and then um, they were studying adults with ADHD and what happened was, is at the time they were running this randomized controlled trial, an earthquake happened in Christchurch, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Most people remember these horrible earthquakes. And at the time, you know, um, you know, this disaster brought an opportunity to study something very unique, and that was resilience in crisis. And what they were able to demonstrate basically is that the group compared to placebo, the group that were receiving the micronutrients had a much lower transition rate to post-traumatic stress disorder after this natural disaster. And I think from memory, and don't quote me on this because I'm sort of can't quite remember the details, but I think it was like a 60% less. Wow. That it is, was huge. That is huge. It, it was yeah. absolutely huge. Whatever the statistic, it was a huge reduction in the incidence of mm -hmm. PTSD in the intervention group. And they went, wow, like that's incredible. This is a um, cheap, easy to deliver, like as opposed to psychotherapy or something mm -hmm. where you need a person to speak to someone else. But micronutrients, you can just put them in the post and get them to the whole area 
and everyone can take it and it and it's was stopping transition to PTSD. So they've got like this incredible therapy, but no one's going to believe this because it's one study we need to replicate it. So by chance, um, another natural disaster happened a few years later in Canada where a friend of Julia's and colleague, I should say, uh, Bonnie Kaplan, who's been involved in oh, yes, yes. micronutrient mm-hmm. research for the brain for years as well, was based. And, and they had a flood in Alberta area in Canada, this huge natural disaster. People lost their homes and, you know, it's horrific. But they quickly mobilised the same study, um, mm-hmm. slightly different uh, placebo or control arm. I think they use vitamin D as a control or something. But basically got micronutrients out and saw exactly the same result, like 60% reduction in progression to PTSD with micronutrients. And the strange twist is, is that um, more recently there was a terrorist attack in Christchurch where this research group are based and they pitched the government to hand out micronutrients um, to people in the area because it was, you know, it had the potential mm. to be a cheap, mm. low-cost way to prevent PTSD. And and it basically, it was just constantly knocked back. Um, they wanted originally to do a study, but weren't allowed to. They wouldn't get approval to do it. Um, you know, this bizarre political game. And, and then when their study was ultimately rejected, they said, well, can we just give people micronutrients as a charity? And they were still declined. So it was. It kind of makes perfect sense when you look at the whole picture of what's been going on right. over the last couple of yeah, years. Yeah, don't use nutrients. Don't use nutrients. There's, That's mad. So I, I even if the evidence is there, I, I get it. I mean, you know, food was was and still is our first medicine. Um, food supplements are just concentrated sources of nutrients. Right. Um, in a in a dose in a capsule in yeah. a tablet. Um, I I certainly. Um, take a bunch of them because I have some vulnerability in my genetic pathways, which is why I got so sick. And I fill those gaps with nutrients and yeah, it works yeah. a treat. I, I don't need, you know, medication for that. No, it's it's a huge thing. And like getting back to the simple take home for people is just make sure your nutrient status is adequate. Yeah. It's even if your diet is incredible, there's it's very likely you're still going to have gaps mm-hmm. that need filling. And there are some really simple things you can do to identify whether or not you have those gaps. Like go and get a few basic tests done. Like some of the things that are really cheap, accessible, non-invasive, and can give you a bit of a clue as to where you're Mm -hmm. sitting on the nutrient spectrum are like your omega-3 index, your vitamin D, check your B12 and your folate and your iron and your homocysteine. And like these are really simple conventional Mm -hmm. tests that are very well validated that are pretty cheap to do and you should just do them once a year. And if you've got gaps in any of those areas, like it will give you clues as to what you need to put in place in a personalized way to help keep you resilient basically. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the first thing is, is, is the nutrients. And then of course, what all this teaches us is that food is important because nutrients really are just a surrogate for diet, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So it's the food that really matters. And Again, it's, you know, people don't necessarily think about this when they think about resistance and resilience to any disease. And we're talking about everything here, not just stress-related diseases, but resistance to chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, but also infectious diseases. You know, we used to think 
you know, it used to be like, you know, diet and lifestyle is the best way to prevent non-communicable diseases, right? This is the mantra of lifestyle and nutritional medicine for years. But if there's anything COVID has taught us is that that is rubbish because we're missing all the communicable diseases, like the infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. Our resistance to them is determined by our nutrition. Like in the same way, diabetes is determined by your exposure well, to rubbish COVID, food and sugar. Well, COVID has exploited those with poor metabolic resilience. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's proved. Yeah. And yet one of the hardest things is drawing people's attention back again. What COVID has also done, and certainly sitting as the Alliance for Natural Health, we've noticed this, is that there is just no engagement really, or low engagement in people wanting to take steps for their health. And I keep putting it back in front of people because it's, it's critical, as you know. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know whether you, you know, found the same thing, probably because you're working more with health professionals is not so clear, but I do know that the appetite for self-care um, where you would think it would be shooting through the roof because of what we've learned over the last two years is actually the opposite. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's sad, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it, when the pandemic broke out, I thought to myself, wow, you know, cause this information about um, resistance to infection and chronic disease mm -hmm. and diet and lifestyle related disease was coming out from day one like the initial work out of china was like if you've got diabetes you're in trouble yeah you know and not even you don't even have to be diabetic if you've got you know um poor blood glucose tolerance and you're not diabetic you're still in trouble it's like these are things you know go and speak to david unwin here in the uk it's mm -hmm. like he's reversing diabetes with diet in his medical practice and publishing all that stuff it's like we know we can intervene mm -hmm. and radically change that picture fast you know, so when the when the pandemic hit, I'm like, wow, this is a huge opportunity for public health. Like, how exciting. <laughs> how wrong was I? <laughs> Silence is deafening. Yeah, it's mad. It's like not only was it not talked about, it was actively suppressed. So it's like we're now at, you know, hopefully we eventually come around and go, Shh, what a, you know, what a lost opportunity and let's never make that mistake again. But, you know, you know, we're still waiting. So it's, yeah. But it does come down to us, okay? So we've got some, you know, we've got nutrients. We've got food. What else have we got in your resilience list? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I, th I think um, a huge thing, like, that's too obvious is physical activity and exercise. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's sort of a bit, a bit too obvious. But I think something that has really stood out for me for many years is this, um, so there's three. Um, the, the fourth is, is that, um, exposure to natural environments. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really got me thinking about this connection was a book that was, um, written some years ago, uh, by Dr. Alan Logan. And the book is called Your Brain on Nature. Mm. And it's still one of my favorite books because for me at the time it was revelationary. No one was talking at that time about forest bathing, but he had spent time in Japan with the doctors who were yeah. studying it. And he translated this into a text that really shared that information mm. and just opened people up to it. So I think a lot of credit is due to that particular book for starting what has become a bit of a movement here. And, and, um, you know, for, for the, for people watching, like the benefits of 
a, like there's so many, you know, if you're a change, like just going and standing in a forest, they've measured this stuff, like lower stress hormones, it changes your mood and feelings, it changes the way your brain is behaving, switching you from like an ADHD type yes. activity to a more relaxed, focused, you know, centered activity. It has direct effects on your immune system that are measurable. Like all these these things have been proven. and it helps to populate your gut microbiome or your whole microbiome as well. Exactly. Yeah, it influences your 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 microbiome. So, you know, it's really quite profound and and it's just a really nice thing to do as well, like to see green space mm. and, and be exposed to nature like that is, is just a beautiful thing. So so that brings us to four. And if you take your <laughs> shoes off while you're doing it, you've got all the earthing as well. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and all the grounding side. No, I like that. And, and maybe that could be my fifth because that's almost a different topic. And, and um, the work that really blew my mind around that, there was a book. I think I found the book after the research, but there was a book by Stephen Sinatra and um, Ober is one of the authors, O-B-E-R, on like, I think I think it's called Earthing actually, and is the title of the book. But I love this stuff and I started reading some of their studies and some of the others that they'd referenced. And eventually I ended up interviewing um, Gautin Chevillier, who is one of the, researchers involved in a lot of the pioneering work that's being done on on grounding and earthing is on this podcast I ran called positive health podcast it's a really great interview but but i mean that is such a funny one because people look at you go like you're right take your shoes off and earth oh, no. nice oh, no. one hippie. Oh, no. but it's but it when you look at the science like you can't deny that this is is a powerful idea that has huge implications for human health. Like, and it's simple, like you just take your shoes off and go and stand on the earth and it's free and it has these profound health effects. So, you know, don't dismiss it as being hippie trippy hoo-ha or anything because no, the science is there and it's so interesting. But you look back <laughs> with, you know, sort of uh, evolutionary biology and, you know, we, our book, Reset Eating, a, a lot of that is about trying to get back into a diet of origin and yeah. put things in place and you put the lifestyles in place. I mean, nature has the answers. Yeah, it yeah. was it was our healer. It was our nurturer. It was all, it was all we had. And so the, uh, you know, the earthing makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Because shoes yeah. are a new development. It does. It, it does. And that uh, the same applies for a lot of the things we've just mentioned is that basically... You know, one of the things that's been talked about for a long time in evolutionary biology is that there are diseases of mm -hmm. civilization and they're due to a mismatch between modern environments and ancient biology. So the, the premise of this is really simple. It's that, you know, modern humans emerged 200,000 years ago and most people can't conceptualize how long ago that was. But if you went the simple mm. way to put it is if you went back in a time machine 200,000 years ago, you could have a normal conversation with someone because they looked and thought just like you. They were probably a bit smarter, actually. But but the point is they mm. were biologically the same. 200,000, you know, the pyramids are what, four or 5,000 years old? 200,000. So I think this is really important. And, you know, for a long time we thought, oh, yeah, it's just diet and exercise. They're the big things that have changed. But no, they're not. Like there's so much more in our environment that we've been overlooking 
you know, the pollutants, like still no one's talking about this, but that has a huge effect on, on human biology and health. Air quality, and, water yeah, quality. Right. You, you know, you know, technology, this. Yeah, yeah, exposure to technology and, and, you know, and the change in our social structure and but look, know, we're, all we're, these things. We're inside and, and right. all those homeostatic mechanisms um, where we had to survive and thrive. Yeah. They were all pretty much turned off in right. modern humans, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. It's, it's like that, you know, that cool study that um, the guy you studied under, under who did the psychoneuroimmunology, right? Yeah, Prambam. Yeah, and he took mm. people, and this was published, he took them through the mountains and stressed them out. In the, Pyrene in the, <laughs> in the Pyrenees. And yeah. let, them, let them live as, as hunter-gatherers. Yeah, and the idea was is that these normal mild stresses that existed in our life before we lived in these boxes and could order food on our phones, you know, were very important for improving our biological mm -hmm. function. So it's, yeah, it's, it's clever stuff. So, you know, with respect to the earthing and everything else we've just mentioned, these are little things that we can pinpoint that are part of this sort of mismatch. But the cool thing is, is you don't need to be a hunter gatherer. Like you just need yeah. to know this stuff and know, you know, smart, intelligent ways of counteracting it like you only need to take your shoes off for 10 minutes and go and stand on the grass or go for a swim in the sea or something and that will ground you like nobody's business and you don't need to eat like a hunter gatherer you just eat lots of fruits and vegetables and seasonal foods and plants and things that are as close to nature as possible and you're and you're mostly there and so on and so on and limit screen time etc etc so there's some cool takeaways. There really are, which is why this fits um, into our Conscious Coherence series this August, because it is all about us coming back into balance with ourselves, the world around us, the people around us. And if our physical forms are out of balance, you know that, I know that, it is pretty much impossible to be in balance in life, isn't it, if you don't have a working, um, a working body. Yeah. So... Ben, I'm thrilled that you shared this and I would love to just end. Um, do you have a couple of words on the on on this new groundbreaking study that's come out that's just debunking pretty much 40 years of SSRIs? Oh yeah, so I think I think the one you're referring to, basically the headlines were that the you know the serotonergic mechanism is yeah. a bit of a myth. There's no chemical imbalance that needs to be um yeah switched um to deal with depression yeah i think i think for a lot of us in this field it's probably not news because mm -hmm. the way we look at depression and have done for some time is that it's what we call a heterogeneous disease so heterogeneous is a very flash scientific word for meaning it's got lots of causes and that means that um and a few things so one of them is that the biology is very different from person to person, like any disease. Like mm -hmm. you don't, you can't really say, oh, this one problem in your biology causes this one disease. It never works like that. And it's very variable across people. And the other thing is, is that it's heterogeneous or mixed causes in terms of what's causing the different changes in biology from person to person. So for some people, it could be past trauma. For other people, it could be their diet. For other people, it could be lack of exercise. For other it could be a job they hate for others it could be a nutritional imbalance and for most people it's all of those mm. you know rolled up in different ratios and 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 playing out in different ways on their biology so i think 
you know, this old idea that you can take a drug or a supplement even, like it doesn't have to be a pharmaceutical drug to have the same stupid reductionist thinking and just correct a, a problem and, and hope that everyone gets better is it just doesn't work. And you only need to look at the outcomes on antidepressant or the SSRI drugs to see that very clearly. And I know there are cases where they help people for sure, that is true. But at the same time, they're marginally better than placebo when you look at placebo-controlled trials and the response to those who do respond well is pretty poor. You know, it's like mm -hmm. a 50% reduction in symptoms is, is called a really good drug response. It's not curing people. It's probably stabilizing some people a little bit is what they're really doing. So we need to, you know, think beyond this this approach and think, well, we could do, be doing better for people. You know, it's it's just outdated thinking. They've netted billions. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. For the, for the pharmaceutical companies, and then that's you know True. that's the bottom They've line. They've been a blockbuster that's, for a long time. They really have. <laughs> yeah. And so this resilience piece that we're talking about now, you know, for anybody suffering with depression, it's the place to start, isn't it? And uh, and finding um, a practitioner of integrative medicine that can look at a whole systems approach and put an entire resilience protocol and package together because that's really where it's at to bring the body back into balance again is, is, is my view. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a well-supported view. I mean, the, the work coming out in this area is just mind-blowing in terms of the benefit it has mm -hmm. to patients. And just one takeaway, like looking at diet, you know, the you know, the randomized controlled dials of diet for depression now that only come out in the last five years are showing that you can basically send a majority of people into remission within about eight weeks. And I'm not, this sounds like a gross exaggeration, but you then compare that to antidepressant medication, it makes them look like a waste of time. Mm. So it's, you know, we really need to start thinking a bit differently about what therapeutics really are and um, you know what the best medicine is. I think it's um, you know stopping the search for the magic bullet and realizing that um, any healthcare change that's going to work is going to take some effort, and uh, and it's going to take some time as well. But yeah. pretty quick when you look at the difference between years on a drug and actually restoring function again. But it does involve effort. Um, and you mm -hmm. know but then once you've taken that effort and you've regained your health and your balance again it's a lot easier to keep in balance but um how are we going to inspire people to make that effort we did yeah you know, we're not we're not that special and that different but it's trying to get you know it's trying to get people you know generally to be able to want to make that change yeah i think i think a big part of it is is just raising awareness that these things are possibilities and that these techniques work and and the information is out there often to support it and you know if you know in my own experience like going back to that if i knew or my doctors knew that there were strategies that could significantly help people at low risk like you know it would have been a different story i think but it mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's why the work that A&H is doing is so important. It's really about just getting this information out there in an accessible way and people will see it and then they'll decide. And, and sometimes it's, you know, a, a, a patient who's not getting anywhere and is looking for answers. And sometimes it's someone really influential 
at a political or a medical level and they have a you know a, a flash of enlightenment and that can set off something that creates changes as well so i think you know from my side i think we just need to keep pushing and and you never know who's going to hear it and sometimes you know miracles happen and and the, the information gets out there and big changes take place i think that's a perfect place to to end thank you because we are at this amazing cusp of change and it couldn't be a more perfect time for that and so i hope our message has reached um, some of you today and inspired you to take action ben cool. brown thank you so very much for joining me it's been fantastic to have you here yeah my pleasure yeah i agree great to be doing this in person and not on a zoom screen thanks for having me at a and hq it's a, it's a joy thanks ben